thanks very much, and thanks for being here this evening. So um, what I'm going to try and do um, in the next 40 minutes or so is to convince you that paleoclimate, the study of past climates, has got something useful to tell us about how we might be able to predict the future, how we might be able to look at the sort of archives that I've got on this opening slide, things like uh, marine sediments here, or corals, or ice cores, or stalagmites, and reconstruct something about the, the past world, which will be helpful to tell us about the future world as well. And before I start on that, on that um, journey, what I want to point out, of course, is the fact that today what we have as ob direct observations of climate, what we know from human observations of climate, is limited only to a few hundred years. And during those few hundred years, climate hasn't done very much. Really. It's been really quite stable during those periods. So when we look into the future, when we expect to see quite large changes of climate, we have to um, also look at other times in the past when climate functioned in very different situations to what we've observed in the last few hundred years. And really, looking into the past gives us some idea of what climate can do. The last couple of hundred years, we've seen climate chugging along in pretty much a stable state. When we look into the deep past, we get an idea of the sorts of range of behaviour that the climate system can undergo. And that can quite directly help us to understand where we're going in the future. So that's the sort of... Um, the sort of message that I want to put across today, but I do want to start this talk by going a little bit into our understanding of the modern climate and where we're going to go in the future, where our predictions are for the future. And in some ways, this is kind of old news now. We've seen so much about climate in the run-up to Copenhagen, <laughs> since Copenhagen with the climate gate at UEA and things. It's been in the news a great deal, so I hope I'm not going to bore you too much with the first few slides going through something about the modern system before I really get on and think about the past. And I do want to start with, with this graph, which is a pretty gnarly graph to start a sort of public talk like this with. But I think it's a really important one to, to, to start the, the presentation with because it shows the underlying physics that really controls greenhouse warming and is important for the global warming that we expect in the future. So let me just walk you through this slide. What this is showing you is the amount of energy emitted um, relative to the wavelength of that energy. Now, everything emits energy, so I'm emitting it, the lights are emitting it, the floor, everything is emitting energy, and the, the frequencies at which it emits is, characterized by, or is characteristic of the temperature of that object. So different objects emit a characteristically different spectrum. These are called black body curves, which might ring bells from school or um, physics courses. So you can see on here, black, in the dashed lines here, black body curves labelled with different temperatures, several different temperatures on here. And you get an idea of how the, 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 both the amount of energy and the distribution of energy changes as the temperature changes. Now, the, one of those black body curves here is 7 degrees centigrade on here. And the Earth, on average, is about 15 degrees centigrade. So you should expect Earth to be radiating back into space at a, um, at a, with a curve slightly above that red curve here. What you actually see if you fly a satellite and you look down on Earth is the black jagged line that you see on here. So for some bits of the spectrum, you get exactly what physics would predict. You see that the energy being radiated back to space is slightly above that red curve here. But for other bits of this spectrum, you get something which is very different. You get big chunks missing from the radiation from Earth. And those chunks of energy that are not getting out to space are where we see absorption by gases in the atmosphere. And this one I'm focusing on here is carbon dioxide, the gas which, of course, is responsible for global warming ongoing today. So this is the basic physics which tells us that if you put CO2 into the atmosphere, it traps heat and therefore um, warms the world up. So this effect, this, green, this um, greenhouse warming effect, 
Um, because of CO2, ozone, water vapour, other things in the atmosphere, it's responsible for keeping the world about 30 degrees warmer than it would be without any CO2, without any water vapour in the atmosphere. Now that's the basic physics. And what are we doing with this physics in the world today? Well, we're basically running an enormous experiment. And the experiment that we're running is to increase the size of that CO2 signal, increase the absorption in the atmosphere. And that's what we see on here. This is the first glimpse of paleoclimate that I'm going to show you. This shows you our record of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere for the last 10,000 years. So obviously much um, longer records than we get from direct observations. In fact, the direct observation is just the red bit up here. So you can see that naturally carbon dioxide was chugging along at a pretty constant level. And then you see the huge spike of CO2 that we've induced by pumping out CO2 by fossil fuel burning. So physics tells us that CO2 absorbs energy in the atmosphere. We've increased CO2 concentrations dramatically, so we should expect to see a warming on the Earth. And the experiment's working pretty well. The Earth is indeed getting warmer. This is showing you, it's taken from the IPCC fourth assessment report, published a few years ago now, which shows you the global average temperatures, and you see this pronounced increase in the last 50 years, um, an increase of about 0.7 degrees over the rest of the 20th century. So quite strong evidence that the world is warming. This sort of average graph that often doesn't really hit home, and I think it's sometimes good to look at a single record. So here's one that is close to home. This shows you the mean air temperature in the Radcliffe Observatory in the middle of Oxford. So this is just one record, but I think even on a single record like this, you get a pretty clear idea that conditions in the most recent past are unusual compared to what you see through the rest of this actually remarkably long continuous climate record. So you can see these, this CO2-induced warming in other bits of, or in, in individual climate records, as well as in the global average that um, is sometimes controversially discussed in the press. So we're doing an experiment, pumping out CO2. Physics tells us it should get warmer. It is getting warmer. But we also want to know what's going to happen in the future. We want to be able to predict the future. And to do this, we need to build some sort of model with predictive capability. Now, you can do that very simply. In the first year um, at the university course here, my students build simple energy balance models with a few boxes in them to think about how um, CO2 might increase temperature. But we can also build these really high-end computer models, which I'll show you on the next slide here, which um, really capture many of the processes that we see going on in the physics and the chemistry of the climate system. Well, the projector's quite dark here. I hope you can just about make this out. You can see the American continent up here, hopefully. And we're looking at, in the bright colours here, ocean circulation. The brighter the colours, the, the faster that the ocean is circulating here. And it's a bit, bit dark, but I hope you can make out some of the features, some of these very strong currents here, the big um, current systems of the tropical Pacific here, which drive the El Nino system. And really, I'm showing you this figure, not just because it's kind of pretty, but also because it gives you a sense of how complex some of the models are that we're using to predict the future. This isn't observations, this is a computer model which is predicting for us the way that the oceans circulate, the way they transport heat and CO2 around the Earth and help us to understand how the climate system operates. So our models are really quite complex and they give us a pretty good idea of what's going to happen in the future. <coughs> this is the um, projection of what's going to happen in the future. This is taken again from the IPCC report. And I should stress here that the different colours on here reflect different emission scenarios, so different amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. They're not showing you scatter between different models. They're showing you scatter between different amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere. So for instance, we've got um, this blue one here is approximate doubling of CO2, whereas the red one is approximate four times CO2. 
The green one is um, often taken as the middle of the range here. That's showing an increase of temperature of, of about 3 degrees centigrade by the end of this century. So 3 degrees might not sound like a great deal. I wonder if anyone um, would guess what sort of temperature change, though, we see between Oxford here, which, as you saw in a previous figure, is a little bit less than 10 degrees, and Glasgow. If you look at average mean temperatures, you always think when you go north it gets kind of cold, doesn't it? Any idea how much colder it is, mean annual temperature in Glasgow? Yep. Three degrees? One degree. So it's quite a small change between the cold of Glasgow and the warmth of here. One degree um, is, is that difference. Actually, if you want to get three degrees, Madrid is about four degrees warmer on average than we are. So if we go to some of these more extreme scenarios here, we're talking about a warming which is roughly like taking London and turning it into Madrid. So three degrees might not sound very much, but it is actually really quite a substantive change of temperature. Okay, these, these are model predictions that tell you what's going to happen in the future. Well, of course, it's possible that the models, even though we've tried to put everything into them, just have something missing. There's some fundamental feedback. Maybe um, CO2 makes temperature go up, it makes it get cloudier, and that makes it colder again. So there's something that balances things out. But we can test that by looking into the past. We can see if there are linkages between CO2 and warming in the past or whether they're actually damped out. And here is an example of, of that sort of work. So another example of paleoclimate. And now we're looking at ice cores such as this um, example here, drilled into the Antarctic ice sheet, going hundreds of thousands of years down into snow and ice that fell long, long ago and reconstructing a record of climate. Um, on here, what we're looking at, probably best just, just to look at the right-hand side of the figure here, the orange is the temperature recorded in this ice core, um, recorded chemically by some of the um, aspects of the ice core, and the blue is telling you about the CO2 levels in the, in, in the atmosphere in the past. And what you can see, I think, quite convincingly, is that if you go back here hundreds of thousands of years into the past, we see a really tight coupling between temperature and CO2 in the past. So there's no magic get-out clause. If we go and look at the history of climate on Earth, there's no get-out clause that um, prevents increased CO2 from causing warming. And we see whenever CO2 changes, we see a change of temperature. Now, for reference on, on here, we've also got not only these natural changes of CO2 bouncing backwards and forwards, we've got the present-day CO2 level that's shown up here. And notice at this stage that the sort of percentage change that we see is about the same between that, between ice ages and the modern, this CO2 change, and the change we see between the pre-industrial and what's happening right now. Let me pick on this, on this particular interval on the, um, on the little ice, on, sorry, on, on the ice age here, about 20,000 years ago, and show something about what paleoclimate can tell us about this particular part of the climate record when we know that CO2 was percentage terms about the same down compared to where we've taken it up in the last 50 years. So what was the date of the little ice age? So it's, uh, this is the ice age, not the little ice oh, age. Right. I, did, I did misspeak there. Okay. So this is the, the ice age at 20,000 years ago. So um, we can reconstruct with some degree of precision what happened to temperatures. And I, again, I'm going to focus on the ocean for this example. Um, we can stab tubes into the sed sediment that's at the bottom of the ocean. This is quite soft sediment. And when you take those tubes out again, you get basically a pile of sediment that's stacked up over many tens or hundreds of thousands of years. And if you, as this woman is doing here, if you sample from those tubes of mud, you can pull out animals like this one. This is a foraminifera. And the types of animals that lived in the past give you characteristic information about temperature. Some like it warm, 
some like it cold. And we can also stick these things in a little vat of acid, dissolve them up, and measure their chemistry, and learn something about the temperatures from a chemical thermodynamic point of view. So we can use marine sediments like this to learn about temperatures, and this is what um, temperatures looked like in the ocean at the height of the last ice age, so 20,000 years ago. Temperature scale is shown on the bottom here, and this is reconstructed from many hundreds of sediment cores for, on which this sort of work has been done. So we see temperatures gone down by something like three or four degrees on average for something like the same sort of CO2 change that we're imposing on the planet at the moment. So although this is a slightly artificial comparison, what you see is that ballpark, the sort of warming and cooling that we see as you go back in the past, is the same as that which the climate models are predicting as we go into the future for about the same sort of size of CO2 change. So we can see here that paleoclimate in the marine setting is giving us some confidence that these sorts of climate models, these predict predictions are actually correct. They're not just um, the basis of a computer model. Yeah. Well, sure, surely the ice age was caused by a temperature change which presumably led to a CO2 drop, not the other way around. Um, uh, the CO2, the very first change of CO2 may have been invoked by a, t by a local temperature change, but it's doubtless the case that most of the change, or of, of the, you know, most of the change that we see in temperature was caused by a change in greenhouse warming because of CO2. So there's a natural process which releases CO2, and that CO2 then warms the whole planet. It's very, very difficult to get the whole planet to warm um, by any mechanism that doesn't involve greenhouse, greenhouse gas changes. So this, this um, prediction of these models tells us that temperature should end up Mid, this is a mid-range emission scenario, so it's kind of tip to what, what, what IPCC think might well happen in the future, suggests that temperatures should end up something like this by the end of the 21st century. So you can see warmings here. Now you see the spatial patterns, but warmings that are something like 3 to 4 degrees, although with a larger amount of warming um, as you go to high latitude. So temperature is actually relatively easy to predict. It's relatively easy to reconstruct for the past, and our models are giving us quite a high degree of, pr of predictive ability for what will happen in the future. But I would posit that actually temperature, although moving London and making it feel like Madrid would be quite a drastic change, temperature isn't probably the most important thing that we're worried about if we look into the future in terms of climate. What other things might we be concerned about? What other, other issues do you think we should be concerned about in the climate system? Melting ice caps and raising water levels. So, yeah, th those are perfect answers. Just the two things I wanted to hear. Rainfall, so how much it rains in the past, um, uh, sorry, how much it will rain in the future as we go forwards, and melting ice caps, how, what's going to happen to sea level. And if you're trying to grow crops somewhere, temperature changes are going to matter, but how much it rains is a much bigger effect. If you're near the coast and sea level is inundating you, it's a much bigger effect than a temperature change. Now, these are both things that are harder to predict with our models and which I'm going to now focus on for the rest of the talk, looking at how we can use the past to learn something about what might happen in the future. I'm going to start off with, with sea level. And sea level, I think, is really one of the things we're, we're pretty confident is going to happen. Scientists, always, scientists don't like being com completely confident about anything. They always want to keep their options open. But as we get increasingly confident that CO2 is causing warming, we're similarly confident that that warming will cause sea levels to go up. And sea level really does matter, as I've just said. And here you see um, an example of why. 
This is just taken from Google. It's a nice Google app that you can get. If you search for Google Sea Level, you can download something to put into um, Google Earth that will enable you to project what happens to sea level around the world um, with different sea level rises. And it goes to pretty preposterous sea level rises. We're not going to get 70 metres of sea level rise on here. But if you look at the dark colours here of one or two metres of sea level rise, this plots for you what will happen to the coastlines if sea level goes up by that much. And I'm picking on China here, the coast of China, because China's often seen as kind of the bad boy in climate discussions. But I think the, the Chinese government know very well that sea level is a very serious concern. Shanghai, for instance, is um, in this region here, one of their major cities of which they're most proud. The whole of this region of China here is within a couple of metres of sea level and actually also partly subsiding. So this is an area where it's extremely vulnerable to sea level change. And indeed, there are other areas of the world similarly um, like that. So um, it's not just people who live in the coast of Britain who, can, who are concerned, people in many areas of the world are concerned about sea level. Now IPCC um, predict, predict that sea level will go up um, by a few tens of centimetres by the end of the century. This is their prediction for sea level. The median is about 36 centimetres, so it's going to go up by something about that much, according to IPCC. Significant, but not catastrophic. However, IPCC explicitly uh, ruled and uh, ignored some effects to do with ice sheets. They said this is, this is the rise due to known effects, but what's going to happen because of effects um, on the major ice sheets, like the Greenland ice sheet that you see in this picture here? And the sorts of things that they were concerned about in particular are shown on this figure here. The way that IPCC did project the future was to look at modern-day observations, such as summarised here, of which bits of the ice sheets are melting and which bits are growing, and getting an idea of how much water is being shed from places like Greenland. But what they said in their report that they simply couldn't deal with in, predict in predicting the future was processes such as this one here. As you start to get melting on the surface of ice, it flows down cracks down to the base of the ice sheet and can lubricate, just like oil, the base of the ice sheet. And that helps the ice to flow away, flow down to lower levels where it can melt more easily or into the ocean. So this sort of process is extremely poorly understood. We don't really um, have the predictive ability to know how quickly these processes are going to cause the ice sheets to collapse. So then I can't help... Um, commenting on these people here. Whenever I show this picture, I'm always struck by how stupid they are. This is, this is ice. They're standing on slippery ice. This is a fast-flowing um, stream going down a couple of kilometres down through an ice shelf, ice sheet, I mean, to, down to rock below. And they're standing on the edge of it. They fell in. They've got no hope. But anyway, apparently they, they all lived through it anyway, apparently. So, so they survived, even if they're looking a bit dumb. So um, can paleoclimate tell us something about where we're going to go um, in the future? Can we learn something from looking into the past? One thing the past shows us very clearly is that sea level has varied and it has been higher than today. This is um, a figure taken on the coast of Oman, a relatively stable coastline, this part of coast. And you can see here um, these very nice bedding planes in this rock. So you can see that the way the rock was aligned and this, as this bedding has been completely sheared off here by the action of waves at the, at the top of this, um, this um, cliff. And this browny material on here is coral reef. This is cemented coral reef, showing you that sea level was very clearly up at this level at some time in the past. The tidal range is about a metre here. This, this thing is about five metres high, and it shows us very clearly that sea level can go at least five metres above where we are today at times in the past. So one thing we'd like to be able to know then is how quickly can sea level change as we go um, up and down 
to these sorts of records. What's the age of that? This is, this, is called the this is the last interglacial, and the corals that, are on, that form on top of here are 125,000 years old. Actually, I should just pop back to this one, because one thing I've, I forgot to mention as I was on this slide is that the IPCC predictions that, as you go forwards here, predict a rise of about three millimetres a year of sea level. And I compare, as I look into the past, I'll compare sea level changes that we know about in the past with that three millimetres a year prediction um, for IPCC. So we want to try and get some idea about how sea levels varied in the past. One of the projects we've been involved in in Oxford recently is an international project to drill into the coral reefs that we see around Tahiti. So this is the island of Tahiti. It's a volcanic island. And around the edges of that island, you can see these nicely developed coral reefs, um, which are very, very um, healthy today. Now, the corals only grow at sea level. They need light, so uh, they, they can only grow where water is very shallow. And if you ever find corals that are a long way below sea level, it means they must have formed when sea level was lower. Similarly, if they form above um, sea level, they mu sea level must have been up there in the past. So if you um, go to Tahiti and you take a big ship with you that can drill, this is a drill rig, so you drill down um, into those coral reefs, you can guess, get a tube of coral, and that tube is a history of where sea level has been in the past. The deeper you find it, the lower you know sea level was. This is the sort of material you can recover. These are some um, coral uh, material directly from that Tahiti drilling, recovered just a couple of years ago now. And we can date these materials using the decay of uranium. So we can take small pieces of the coral, we can look at the decay of uranium to one of its daughters, thorium, get a very accurate idea of its chronology, and learn about the history of sea level. And this is what we learn from looking at those corals. This is the Tahiti record, and we're looking at thousands of years on here, so it's about 17,000 years here, and sea level at that time was something like 110 or 120 metres lower than it is today. The grey on here is TET data from some time ago. The coloured stuff is more recent data. But the bottom line here is that you can see that sea level is capable of going through really quite large changes, something like 120 metres of sea level change between the ice age and the modern conditions of that, that we see today. And this large change is really caused by the fact that at the last ice age we had a lot more ice stored on land. This is looking down on the Earth from above as the North Pole. This is today with the Greenland ice cap shown here. And for um, reference, here's ice age in the past with a much more extensive ice sheet stretching down across Britain and down to New York. So it's the size of these ice sheets and how they varied in the past that is controlling sea level in the past and therefore also that will set um, sea level as we go into the future. Now, um, superimposed on this general increase, this 120 metre increase, we also see some times when sea level moves very quickly. And here's um, the most prominent example here. This is a meltwater pulse where we know that um, the ice collapsed into the ocean very quickly and we saw sea level going up very quickly. <coughs> it went up at this, into, at this period here by 60 millimetres a year. So that's something like 20 times faster than the IPCC predictions of what we can expect to see in the future. Very rapid sea level rise during the melting of these major ice sheets that were there at the height of the last um, ice age. I'm going to jump back now to the, to the deglaciation before. So this is, the, this is getting rid of ice sheets, this deglaciation. I'm going to look at the one before that. It's quite a complicated figure, this, um, so I'll just talk you through it quite quickly. What we, but what we see here is as you go from sea levels around about 120 metres below modern today, 
around about 140,000 years ago. As you go up towards the last time that climate was like today, we see um, evidence show, picked out by the red and the blue here for really quite dramatic oscillations in sea level as the ice sheets melt, as, as we put water back into the ocean. And again, the oscillations that we see here are happening at the rate of about 40 or 50 millimetres a year. So again, very much quicker than we see um, in the IPCC predictions for the future. But my main reason for showing you a second deglacial, like at this example here, is that this is the deglacial that goes higher than today. So when we get up to these ages of about 125,000 years ago, this is the time when sea level was at about five metres higher than it is today. So if we can learn something about how quickly sea level goes up um, in these last portions of this melting, we get some indication of how quickly sea level might change in the future. We haven't really understood the details of what that water at the bottom of the ice sheet might be doing, but we've at least understood how quickly ice sheets as a whole can respond. This is the problem that we're actively trying to get at. Probably the best example um, of tackling this so far is a group of workers in Southampton. And this is looking at the same sort of interval here. So looking at the period coming up to 125,000 years ago as sea level goes from, from zero up to higher values here. So you can see the data looks pretty noisy here. It's not especially convincing exactly how fast it's going up. But the graph up here plots for you the best idea of the rate of change of sea level. So IPCC would predict that modern sea levels are going to be three uh, millimetres on here. Note this is a centimetre scale. Three millimetres. And through this change between naught up to about plus five or plus ten, we're seeing increasing sea level at about ten millimetres a year. Complicated figure, I know, but the take-home message is here that sea level is going up about three times faster than IPCC predicts as you go between modern sea level and plus five metres. So it's really quite a rapid projected sea level if the last time sea level was higher than today is any guide for the future. So if it's going up three times faster than today, that would predict... Um, that, so if it's going up three times faster than the IPCC suggests, this would predict about a metre by the end of the century. And I think many people who work in this field, myself included, think that a metre change by the end of the century is really not that unlikely. There's really quite a good chance we might see that. And a metre change would do something like this. This is the coast of the, uh, the eastern seaboard of the US with the red colours on here showing you um, what one metre change will do to the coastlines. One metre, you know, it's this sort of much. It's, it's possible to defend. You can build walls so they're a metre high. You can deal with it if you're rich enough. But you have to do it everywhere. You've got to do it all the way around the coastline. It becomes extremely difficult to protect coastlines, particularly in relatively low-lying areas like the Chesapeake Bay, when you have a metre of sea level rise. So this is a fairly serious prediction that paleoclimate is telling us about what may happen as we go into the future. Come back to that Google app that I told you about before. This is bringing it a bit closer to home. You start to see the resolution problems in Google at this stage, but this shows you London, what we might expect to see um, with a metre of sea level rise. So we're looking for the dark red colours on here. And there are definitely patches, particularly out east, where one metre of sea level rise is serious. We have to think about whether the Thames Barrier can deal with those sorts of changes, and the British government is going to have to worry about making sure it's um, sufficiently protected. Otherwise, we may see things like um, this event. This is in 1953, before the building of Thames Barriers. This is in Erith in the east of London, showing a storm surge that came up the North Sea and was able to break through the, um, the, the banks of the Thames and flood into um, extensive areas in the east of London. So one metre of change could be significant for increasing risk in the future. 
think I'll just um, jump through those two. This is a very dark slide here, but I, um, hopefully you can just about make out that it's a cave. Is that visible? Do you want to try and pull that curtain? I can try. Yeah, we tried to make the projector um, brighter earlier. I think it's just a dark slide, this one, I'm afraid. Um, so this is a slide that I put in here as a bit of a segue to get me between sea level and onto rainfall, onto precipitation. Now, I don't know if you can see it here, but you have to tell my word for it. The bottom of this picture, the black down here, is, is water. This is the sea. This is a cave in Sardinia. And what you can see in the cave, I hope you can see this, is there's a line in all these stalactites here, which you can see quite clearly around the whole cave. And that's five metres above sea level. That's the line that was left behind in this cave when sea level was five metres higher, about 125 metres, 125,000 years ago in the past. So another line of evidence that sea level can go higher than today. Now, we're actually currently trying to use cave deposits to learn more about sea level. But the reason I wanted to show you a cave like this one is that it's also one of the archives that we can use to look into the past and understand how rainfall has changed when we go back in time. So let's, again, motivate um, paleoclimate by trying to predict the future. This is a figure taken, again, from the same IPCC report, which shows you the best predictions that we have for summer rainfall by the end of this century. So this is showing you what we expect to happen to summer rainfall in percentage terms compared to today. I'm sure your eyes are all being drawn to Britain straight away up here. And you can see that we're predicting that summer rainfall in the red colours goes down by 10, 20%, so drier summers in Britain in the future. And there's actually some degree of confidence about that. The stippling pattern that you see on here means that all of the different climate models that are being compared on this figure are agreeing with each other. This is a multi-model comparison, and the stippling means that there's a pretty high degree of agreement. Well, there's no stippling, the agreement is less good. And where you don't see any colour at all, the models just totally disagree. Roughly half say it's going to get wetter, and roughly half say it's going to get drier as we go towards the end of this century. Now, that's um, pretty important for some regions of the world. And I want to draw your attention particularly to this region here, the Asian region here. If we look at a map of population of the world, Look how many people live there. Of course, you know this anyway. Billions of people live in India and China. And that this is the only place you see population densities getting up to greater than 500 per <coughs> kilometre. So something like a third of the world's population living in this area here, where our ability to predict rainfall in the future is really pretty lousy. Let's have a look at that area inside the box here and see what it actually looks like. Again, I'm calling on Google to help me here. This is showing you that image. I'm going to blow up on the next figure this area in the middle of this box here. You can see this is a pretty wet part of the world anyway. You can see the Yangtze River, one of the world's truly great rivers flowing through this region. Um, lots of standing water on the surface here. And this is not a deserted region of the world. Wuhan, this city here, has a population of more than 10 million people. It's an enormous city. And there's plenty of other people living in some of the other cities in this region as well. Now, if I blow up one more time and go into that red box here, we can start to see the effects of flooding in this region. This, is, this, is, this figure is comparing two satellite images with one another. Just to get your bearings, here's the Yangtze River flowing through here again. And the, the dark blue colours on this um, satellite comparison are areas of the world that were wet both years. So this is comparing 1998 with another more average year. And you can see that in both of those years, the Yangtze was wet, not surprisingly. But the lighter blue colours on here 
are areas that were wet only in 1998. So this is an unusually high rainfall year. The monsoon that pours water onto Asia was unusually strong that year, and we saw very significant regions of flooding in this central area of China. And in fact, if we showed you similar pictures here, many areas of China experienced very significant flooding because the monsoon was unusually strong in that year. So we have pretty good records of the monsoon for the last couple of um, hundred years. This is what they look like. This is actually showing you the Indian monsoon, but it's the same sort of story. Here we're looking at every year in blue, strong monsoons, red, weak monsoons for the last century or so through time. So um, I should perhaps take you back here quickly to um, this figure and remind you that the sort of predictions that are being made by IPCC, if they're any good at all, are that, are that rainfall here might go up by something like 10 or 20%. Quite a big shift in summer monsoon rainfall in this region if IPCC is, is right, although, as you can see, there's not much stippling and not much confidence. So let's compare that number of plus 20, 10 or 20% with what we actually have seen in the last couple of centuries, the last century or so. What you see is that for nearly all of these years, they're kind of within the pink lines here. The average is pretty much stationary, and it's pretty much within plus or minus 10%. If we saw summer rainfall increase by 20% in the Asian monsoon region, that would be a very significant change. And it wouldn't be a one-year event. This would be changing the base state up by 20%. It would really be significant for China and represent a large amount of additional flooding. Yeah? Your, your, your picture of the, the rainfall predicted increase shows big increases over the poles, where it's going to fall as snow, presumably. Yep. Has the fact that that would increase uh, glacial production, does that get factored into your models anywhere? Uh, let me go back to a previous figure. Um, it does get factored into models. It also gets quite clearly seen in observations. And this is, um, this is the Greenland figure that I showed you before but didn't talk about at length. This is showing you, basically the red colours here are where the ice sheet's getting thicker and the blue colours are where it's getting thinner. And what you see is that ice is controlled not just by temperature, but also by how much it snows. So in the interior, it stays, it stays below freezing. So the more it snows, the more it, it gets thicker. Whereas around the edge, um, as you warm it up, that effect of the extra precipitation is more than compensated by the extra temperature. So we do see this quite complicated response with more melting around the edge and more growth in the middle. And we see the same thing in Antarctica. So that has definitely um, been seen that the effect is there and it's, and it's incorporated in um, climate models as well. Can be seen in their predictions. Now I've got to find where I got to. So I think I uh, got to here. So cat I've got to catastrophe in, in China, right? 20 degrees more rainfall, lots more flooding. We really ought to know if those predictions are right. Because remember, those predictions were saying, we don't really know, but it looks like it might be plus 20. So we really need to know if it is, um, what our level of confidence is about change in the future. So the models aren't really helping us. They're disagreeing with each other. This is the longest record that we have of uh, monsoon intensity through time. But if we look in, into paleoclimate, perhaps we can learn something more. Now here we're going to come back to some caves. This is a uh, cave in, right in the middle of that region of China that I've been showing you satellite imagery of. It's quite a big one. You can just about see people in the mouth of the cave there. It's quite an idyllic place to do field work in. Here we, we see um, people going along the river in this setting. 
quite a pretty cave in the interior as well. And it has some enormous stalactites like this one here. This is a this guy, my collaborator, plays volleyball for his university. He's not a short guy, and this is definitely not a short stalactite that he's standing next to. So um, these sorts of um, rock are really wonderful archives of climate. They grow systematically year on year for tens or even hundreds of thousands of years. And they grow from rain, and they grow capturing chemical information about the rainfall in the past. You can see that if you take the same stalactite and you split it in half and you look inside it. You can see the clear layers in here. It looks like a tr you've got tree rings or something inside here. And in detail, as you'll see later, there's a it's annually layered throughout its length here. So you can count the layers down this sample and look back 9,000 years, in this particular instance, down into the past. Recapture something about what's happened um, to rainfall in the past. You can also date these things extremely well. Like it's the same sort of tool that we use for the corals we can use the decay of uranium to thorium to give us a very precise chrono chronology of these samples. And here you see the distance from the top of that sample plotted against its age. So the combination of this radiometric dating, a bit like C14, and, um, and counting the layers gives us a very good idea of when changes happened in the past. I think I'll skip over that one. This is, um, this is what we learn when we look at that particular sample that you've just seen and we look at the last 9,000 years of, of history. This is, uh, on this thing, is the, on this axis is what we're actually measuring. I won't describe what that is in detail. Here we see the age, and here we see the reconstruction of rainfall that we see for the middle of China, right where that flooding was going on in the satellite images, through the last 9,000 years. Now, one of the things that's quite good news about that is if you look at the long-term evolution, there really hasn't been a change outside of that plus or minus 10% value that we see in the last century. So this suggests that the monsoon is actually a relatively stable phenomenon. There's been quite big climate changes. 6,000 years ago, for instance, in this period here, the, um, the Sahara was green. It was covered in a savanna. Climate was really quite different in some parts of the world. And the monsoon was a little bit stronger than today, but really not very much stronger than it is today. So the monsoon doesn't look as if it's particularly sensitive to changes in boundary conditions of the, of the climate probably quite good news. And our first efforts to, to use this sort of data to narrow down which models are correct for predicting the future are suggesting that those numbers of plus 20% rainfall in the future are probably not right. Probably the monsoon will strengthen, but not strengthen by as much as predicted by some of the models. So um, this is another example of how we can use paleoclimate to look into the past and learn about the future. The thing I wanted to finish off with is um, the same sort of story, but looking at much, much higher resolution and looking at the possibility of catastrophic change as we go forwards in time. Does anyone recognise this picture? Day after tomorrow, yeah. So some people have seen this wonderfully realistic Hollywood film that, of course, captures exactly the way the climate system works all the way through it. This particular figure um, I really don't like because I'm quite partial to New York. I wouldn't want it to be destroyed by a, flood, um, a storm surge like this. Luckily, that won't happen. Most things in this um, Hollywood film are completely fabricated. Although, personally, I wouldn't mind too much if this happened, because I don't, I don't really like LA very much, so I wouldn't mind if we lost, if we lost some bits of LA. But although this, this film was quite fanciful, there were a few nuggets of truth in it, particularly about the basic idea behind it. And one of them was the idea that you might get really quite abrupt change in the Gulf Stream. This is another model result. This is, this is non-observations, although it very closely 
uh, mimics observations. It's modeling the Gulf Stream. So the red colors on here reflect warm oceans, the blue are colder oceans. And we're going through a couple of years of cycle and repeating that, those couple of years many times here. So this Gulf Stream is transporting large amounts of heat northwards across the Atlantic to keep um, Europe relatively warm. Now, the thing that the day after tomorrow said was, well, maybe what can happen to this Gulf Stream is it can divert significantly and go further south and warm up further south and therefore cool the northern hemisphere somewhat. And this is something that we know has happened in the past. That's why there was a nugget of truth behind this Hollywood film. And we can see that if you look in ice cores amongst other archives. This is an ice core from Greenland, using the same picture, but it's a, just to tell you it's an ice core. This is the last 10,000 years. Climate's been pretty boring for the last 10,000 years, really. But I hope you'll believe me if I say there's one event that looks more prominent than, than the others, and that's this event here. It's an event about 8,200 8, years ago in the past. And this event um, was caused by the ice sheets as they finally finished decaying at the end of the Ice Age, pouring out a great deal of water into the ocean and effectively changing the circulation in the ocean and stopping the Gulf Stream from going so far north. So we got significant cooling in Greenland in a climate state that's really rather similar to the one that we see today. Now the question, I got, we, we know quite a lot about this event and I can ask, answer questions if anyone has them, but in the context of this talk, what I wanted to do was to say, what do we know about what, what might happen to the monsoon if we saw a catastrophic change in circulation in the North Atlantic. So we can go back to our archive here, we can dig out the bit at 8.2, which is around about here, 8,200 8, years ago, down here somewhere, and we can look at this, we can go to our paleoclimate archive in really exquisite detail. This shows you that little bit of the stalactites. this is just a four centimetre long piece from that two metre high stalactite. You can hopefully just about see that there are annual layers in here, so we can count the layers here. Lots of wiggly curves on here, which I won't talk about in detail, apart from the fact that we can look at those wiggly curves and we can learn that climate got significantly drier during this period at exactly the same duration and exactly the same form as we see in Greenland. So we can see here this, um, this connection across the world in paleoclimate. We can see that as you get cooling in the North Atlantic region, we're seeing significant drying in the monsoon. We're seeing a connection between different bits of the world, which may well operate as we go into the future as well. And this um, particular operation here is being, uh, this, this particular connection between North Atlantic and over here is probably being controlled by how cold the northern regions of the continent are um, as you go into the early summer. How much snow you've got here controls how quickly you can get the temperature signal over to the monsoon to kickstart the monsoon. Okay, I think I've, I've spoken for long enough, so I'll slip, skip over my last couple of slides here. Pretty though they are. Um, and have a look at this, this figure as a final slide. This is a figure that shows you weather, so it's showing you the last couple of weeks. You can see the, 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 um, the days flicking by up here. The last couple of weeks of weather systems. Now these sorts of images here, this is satellite imagery, this is real data this time that you're looking at here. These sorts of weather systems are the ones that we're predicting with our, with our weather models that we look at two, three, four days in advance and try and understand whether we're going to get rain in the future. They're actually very similar to the sorts of models that we then use to predict a long way into the future, to the end of this century. But if we want to test these models in the sort of climate states that we're going to get to by the end of this century, we need to test them against situations that are very different from the situations that we've seen in our instrumental records. 
The last 100 years hasn't given us a climate that looks anything like what we'll see at the end of this century. If we want to build models like this, which are accurate for 100 years hence, one of the really good ways to do that is to look back in the past, to use paleoclimate as an archive of when climate was significantly different from today, and hopefully get this sort of level of understanding about where we're going to go in the future, not just in the last couple of weeks. So thanks very much. I'll leave it there.